A few years ago, Frances Haugen made a choice that would change her life. She decided to become a whistleblower, an action that would also change how the world saw her employer, Facebook. She began quietly collecting tens of thousands of pages of internal corporate documents. These documents, she says, would show that, in short, Facebook was putting profits over the well-being of its users. From how the company oversaw hate speech in India, to how it negatively impacted teenagers' mental health. She shared those documents with a reporter from the Wall Street Journal and the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC. In the moment that I made the decisions, I didn't really think that much about any of the consequences. And after she quit her job at Facebook, now known as Meta, in May of 2021, she had a lot of time to think. Because I I was in a position where I couldn't do anything, right? Like, I was done. I wasn't at Facebook anymore. Like, I just had to sit and wait for a couple months. There were plenty of things to worry about. Becoming a whistleblower, it doesn't just affect your career. It can radically change your personal life, relationships with family and friends, your financial situation. But in Frances's experience, there's one worry that sticks out as quite memorable. I have a really close friend who's like a big brother figure. And he's known me since I was 25 years old. He's stuck by me through the ups and the downs. And I'm like a godmother to his kids. And he works at Facebook. And I I couldn't tell him, right, because that would have put him in risk. But at the same time, like, I didn't know if he would feel betrayed because, like, he still works there. In September 2021, the Wall Street Journal had started publishing articles using the documents that she had pulled. But her identity as the Facebook whistleblower remained a secret that wouldn't be revealed until the American TV news program 60 Minutes aired an interview with her in early October. She knew she needed to tell her friend that she was the whistleblower before her interview aired. But she says she procrastinated on this for a while. I was nervous about this call because I had been like neurotic about it and putting it off for like two days. I was like waiting for the shoe to drop. Is he going to feel betrayed? Did you call him? Did I you called text him. him. Yeah. So I called. Well, I texted him. Text maybe. I texted him and been like, I need to call you. And he's like, okay, you need to call me. You can call me during these windows. I blew through all the windows he gave me and like the last window. That's like right before it's going to come out. And I'm like, so you know how there's like this Facebook whistleblower? And just so you know, like on 60 Minutes tonight, I'm going to come out and that's me. And, and so, like, imagine you're, like, in that gap between, like, you finally have let the cat out of the back, and now you're, like, waiting, like, how are they going to respond? And his response was that he felt hurt that I hadn't told him sooner. So he was totally okay that I had done it. And that, wow. you know, if I thought it was the right thing, but he just felt hurt that I hadn't told him sooner. And I was like, well, I, I couldn't tell you. I would have put you in danger. That night, Frances appeared on 60 Minutes and revealed her identity to the world. The thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was there were conflicts of interest— between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. And then later that week, she appeared before Congress. I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. After Francis's testimony, she says, He sent me a photo of um, him and like the elder godson watching my Senate testimony, like on a phone in the kitchen. And I was like, okay, we're cool. And I'm a crier. And so like when I got hit with that relief of, oh, he's okay. No, we're okay. I started crying. 
It was one of her early lessons dealing with the consequences of becoming a whistleblower. And it would be one of many. Chindera from the Financial Times. A few years ago, Frances Haugen was just another Silicon Valley tech employee, working as a product manager on Facebook's civic integrity team. But then her team was dissolved, and she decided she needed to speak up about what was happening inside her company. In 2021, she came forward publicly as the Facebook whistleblower, and now she's written a book about her experience. On today's episode of Behind the Money, I'm talking with Frances about what she's learned over the past couple of years and how becoming a corporate whistleblower can change your life. Hi, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So take me back to just before you decided to become a whistleblower. So this would have been late 2020. Can you talk about what really propelled you to do that in the first place? So the election came through. Facebook had worked extremely hard for over a year to minimize risk at election time. Election went pretty well. The problem was right after the election, like less than a month later, they dissolved the team that had been responsible for keeping the election safe. And Facebook has a management culture that is very much about like throwing things up in the air and just seeing where they come down. And in those reorganizations, you can always kind of see like who were the winners and who were the losers. You can see like who ended up in charge kind of at the end. And civic integrity definitely, we were not the people who ran the new divisions that got incorporated. We were the ones that got eaten. The moment that they let the team be dissolved was the moment that I realized they couldn't heal on their own. So that's the moment I decided I was going to have to do something to bring the information forward because Facebook needed help. The moment that I decided I had to come forward it's like a very different moment. Mm, how so? I think part of it was I felt motivated in the moment by things like I had watched my coworkers burn out trying to fight the tide with too little resources, right? I felt like I was being loyal to my coworkers. But I can totally imagine like an executive saying what I did was not helpful. And, you know, Facebook's never come after me. But they could have. And like a real part of the calculation was, is this the thing where the only way I can come out of this without being really harmed is if the public protects me? And the public will protect you a lot more if there's a face. And I feel like that definitely is the thing that happened. Senator Blumenthal came out in my Senate hearing. He said publicly, if you do anything to harm Francis, we will make your life unpleasant. And um, I think if I had been an anonymous shadowy figment, right, Mm -hmm. an imaginary whistleblower, You know, there was already grumblings that this is just from a disgruntled person. Mm -hmm. And like that's a way that they delegitimize the actual content of the complaints. So your identity was revealed to the public in October 2021. So tell me, what has your life been like these past two years? You know, it's been really interesting from the perspective of like I spent a lot of my life trying to avoid attention. You know, I'm a data scientist. Like, I was very content sitting in the corner and playing with a beautiful data set. But it's been really transformative having to learn how to have a voice or how to show up. But if I had crossed, you know, Twitter, the Elon Musk fanboys would have come after me. Mm -hmm. I have open DMs on Twitter. I have open DMs on Facebook Messenger. My email address is on my website. People just don't harass me. 
And like, I am super, super grateful that I could have stepped out into the world and gotten a barrage of hate. And I never did. Yeah. And I think that's because the world was hungry to actually hear the truth about Facebook. So what's happened with your complaint to the SEC? Are they still running an investigation? So the thing that's quite frustrating about the SEC is um, they don't tell you anything. Okay. Don't tell you anything at all. Um, So it's totally possible that my case is gone, right? It's totally possible that they will call me up in three years and be like, oh, by the way, um, you really just don't know. Okay. And, um, you know, I didn't didn't go to the SEC because I I wanted money because it's a lottery ticket. Like it could be or could not be. Yeah. Um, even the fact that I have like such a public presence now might disqualify me because they could say you did it for fame, you know, mm-hmm. or some bullshit like that. Um, I did it because it gave me legal protections, right? That Facebook can come after me, but then I could I could say, hey, you're harassing me because mm-hmm. of my SEC. So now you've written this book. It's called The Power of One. And in it, you go into a lot of detail about your concerns with Facebook's practices, but you also talk a lot about your life growing up in Iowa, college, your previous jobs at Google and Pinterest, and then later Facebook. Um, But something that really stuck out to me is how you really do focus in on the idea around the power of one. Can you talk a bit about what you mean by that phrase? I've talked to a number of whistleblower lawyers. Mm. So there are people who specialize in interfacing between individuals and, say, the SEC. And uh, allegedly, I don't know, they might be just flattering me. You never know on these things. Um, they say that like some, something like 75% of the people who come to them now say, I saw what Francis did, hmm. right? It, it was a, enough of a cultural moment. And I hope this book makes it a slightly bigger cultural moment that it made people realize that in a world where more and more of our economy is run by opaque systems, there will be a larger and larger need and an obligation of individuals to bring the truth to the public, because that is the only way the public will get the truth it needs. I was curious, you know, as you said, you're not mm-hmm. really a person that is seeking the spotlight per se, but your book goes into kind of like even more detail mm-hmm. about your life, your personal life, relationships, yeah. health challenges you've had. Why did you mm. feel like you wanted to share all of that with people? People tell themselves all these different stories about why they can't follow their hearts. They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to be impoverished. They're going to lose their homes. They're going to lose their partners. And you're like, you know, they're going to end up on a box on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And like, I never ended up homeless, but like I went through all of that at the same time in my late 20s. It was just like thing after thing after thing. And I wanted to tell the story of the hardest thing I did in my life was not blow the whistle on Facebook. The hardest thing I did in my life was like come back from all that. But it's really important for us to have stories about how people stand up when they fall down. Because for me, because I knew that I could come back from losing it all, when I found myself in a situation where I had to choose between risk and like my conscience, it didn't feel like that big a deal. So I think a lot of people who will be listening to this episode, they work in the corporate world themselves that you came from, whether it's the tech world or finance, consulting, what have you. What would you say to someone who is listening to this right now who is concerned about something that their company is doing? What would you tell them that they should do? What should they consider? So the thing I always tell people is if you think something is happening, doesn't mean you have to be at the point where you're ready to blow the whistle or you're even considering blowing the whistle. The most important thing you can do is find one person you trust and talk to them about it. 
And it's probably going to be someone who doesn't work there, right? It's probably going to be a lot of family member. It's going to be a really close friend. It might be a therapist. Because like one of the things that I came to appreciate only after I came out was I found out I was an anomaly. I found out that a lot of whistleblowers go through really profound trauma before they come out, mm. right? That they have to wrestle in silence, like alone, with something that might cost people's lives. And I think that suffering in silence is really, really hard on people. And so the most important thing you can do is identify what is your support system. Because for me, I lived with my parents during COVID. You know, I went through a solid six months where I was just agonizing over what I saw. Mm. And because I lived with my parents, I wasn't the one having to deal with the dissonance. Because the reality is if you're seeing something at work that seems wrong, you are also probably being told stories at work about why either nothing can be done or why it's not wrong. And having to deal with that conflict of I feel something, like something seems not right. The dots don't seem to add up. But hearing from people you trust or respect or really like something different, that's really hard on any human being. Yeah. Now, practically speaking, what other advice would you give to someone considering this? One of the things that I was not aware of because it wasn't really a thing yet was when I came in, there were pro bono lawyers who would provide support for free in exchange for like a cut of your SEC settlement should it ever happen. There wasn't this other path, which is there's a group called the Signals Network. And because they don't have a financial interest in your case, they are there to do just whistleblower support and they will matchmake you to lawyers. It means that you're not going in blind. And so I, I strongly encourage people to go to those kinds of groups versus going directly to an attorney. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I was also very mm -hmm. struck by was the compassionate tone that you took when writing about your colleagues at mm. Facebook who obviously were not whistleblowers. Mm. Could you explain a bit more about why why you feel mm. that way totally. toward them and you're, why you're yeah. not bitter toward them? Yeah. I think there's this thing of if we demonize others, we lose the opportunity to learn from them. You know, I could have gone in there attributed malicious intent to them, but I think we lose something there because I met so many kind, lovely, compassionate people if we can't figure out how a bunch of kind, compassionate people did something horrific, we will just get more of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm kind of curious about, because yeah. I think I think about, you know, people can be really siloed in their positions. Like, yeah, totally. an engineer is like, OK, I just build this thing because the designer told me to. That's my yeah. job. Yeah. And I don't want to get involved. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, whatever. I don't want to get involved in the politics of whatever this thing is yeah. that I'm building. Resisting or, takes a lot more energy. Yeah. Or even yeah. a salesperson saying, I'm just going to sell this product because that's what I'm told to sell. But maybe there's something mm -hmm. that's, you know, I'm thinking about like the opioid crisis or something. Yeah. And collectively, that ends up potentially becoming a societal problem um, when all of these people are doing these siloed jobs. What do you think we do mm. about that? So what, one of the big things I talk about towards the end of the book is this question of companies in general are facing a really interesting challenge over the next 10 to 20 years, which is, you know, you can lock your company down, right? Like Facebook could go in there and say, no one's bringing their laptops home no working from home. We're going to control when you access these things so that no one can take pictures of their screens. Right? Companies are going to have to decide, do they want to fear their employees? Because every single lie is a liability. You might not realize it in the moment, but every time the actions of your company diverge 
from what you, you're saying your company does externally, you create a tension. And that tension gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it, it means that every employee inside your company gets worn down a little bit because people don't like keeping secrets. Mm. And so the thing that I, I think is really important for us, like I'm, I hope people will use my book for this, is like taking it to their managers and be like, hey, we need to have a culture that values transparency because otherwise we're deluding ourselves, right? We are going to acquire more and more of these liabilities and we will just have surprises. And I think that's the way that you can begin to talk about awkward topics. Even if you're a very junior person, you can say, hey, I want to make sure the company is resilient. I want to make sure it's really highly performant. How can we make sure we have a culture that values telling the truth? Yeah. Because guess what? Gen Z knows they're disposable, right? Millennials know they're disposable. The company doesn't care about you. They're going to lay off, you know, 20,000 people. Why would you hold their secrets for them? Yeah. And that was actually a big part of why people were so upset about the layoffs of Facebook. Facebook had a culture for a long time of if you are a loyal Facebook person, we'll watch out for you. Didn't really work and out that for a happen. lot of people. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of Congress's response since your testimony? You know, it's so interesting. So I've learned to think a lot more holistically. So, um, you know, we have we in the United States like to think about the U.S. as like that's where change comes from. The reality is there are lots of stakeholders in the world and that if any single one moves, it improves for everyone. Right. And in the time after I came out, um, not all people in the United States are aware that Europe passed like a generational law called the Digital Services Act. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I am not um, super excited about the United States from the perspective of we have not passed any transparency laws. Like we're struggling with even very basic ones. But we are seeing movement in places like Australia and Canada. And so I am excited to keep working. Do you see this title sticking with you for the rest of your life, the Facebook whistleblower? Do you know what's fun? So I had a moment two weeks ago. I did an interview in Canada, and they never mentioned that I was the Facebook whistleblower. Wow. What My first one. I had my first one. What was the topic of the interview? We, we talked or? about social media safety and, like, how do we do tech accountability? And I was introduced as, like, a tech accountability activist. And I was like, that's what I am. It was this really novel moment for me. I was like, wow, I had my first one. I had my first interview where it was like, no, Frances is actually not the whistleblower. Yeah. She's the opaque systems person. You know, she's the person who says, like, we need different governance solutions. And I was like, oh, the glimmer of the future. Yeah. So looking past this book, uh, what are you working on now? So I've been working with um, a couple of people to found a nonprofit called Beyond the Screen. And our goal is around capacity building across the ecosystem of accountability for social media. So, you know, we like to think of laws as these like singular moments where we are made safer. You know, laws in many ways are like a lagging indicator that we have experienced culture change, you know, that we have established norms. We have standards for what it means to transgress those norms. And right now, many of the components that would make up that ecosystem of accountability, that's things like uh, lawyers that understand what a cut corner looks like so they can hold people responsible. That's investors that know how to manage risk and you can guide companies towards long-term profitability. It's even like legislative aides that know what's effective. All of it's missing. And that's because we've been denied a chance to build a public muscle of knowledge, of accountability. You know, in the 1960s, when we started having things like seatbelts in cars, we got that from Unsafe at Any Speed, a book, because we had 60 years of automotive engineers. You know, we had 100,000 automotive engineers in the world. 
You know, you had insurance companies that really didn't want to have to do payouts. They had invested in that research. We have to build that whole ecosystem. And that's what we're focused on. Yeah. What do you hope people take away from hearing about your experience? The thing I want to leave people with is we have invented communication technologies before, right? And every single time, it doesn't matter what it is, it's incredibly disruptive. All the way down to like the telegraph. Like you'd be like, how can the telegraph be that disruptive? Historians don't think the telegraph caused the Civil War, but they do think it influenced the timing of the Civil War because it was the first time you actually got enough news from far away to realize that people thought different things than you did. Or like when we started to get cheap printing presses, newspapers, you know, we can talk about the problems of misinformation today, but we fought full on wars over misinformation. But we learned. We got journalistic ethics. We started passing laws on things like media concentration. You can't own all the newspapers in one place and create an echo chamber. We had things like radio. Listening to voices gives you such a different emotional connection than reading that historians think it played a big role in the rise of dictators in World War II, right? Or FDR, right? For the yeah. first time, you could hear your leader. You could emotionally connect to them. And people responded in a different way than when they were just reading. But we learned. We invested more in public media. We invested in different kinds of media. We saw the bugs in the system and we, we healed around them. Mm. And the thing I want to leave people with is if you feel overwhelmed right now, it's a totally reasonable response. It is overwhelming. It's scary because this is our burden. Figuring out what to go from here is this is our time to shine. And the thing we need to remember is no matter how perplexing it is, we have figured this out every single time before. And it might get a lot worse before it gets better. But every single time before, we have responded, we have learned, we have changed, and we have figured out how to live with these technologies in effective ways. Well, Francis, thanks so much for yeah. being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you want to read more about Francis Haugen or Meta, the articles linked in our show notes are all free to read right now. Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Special thanks to Richard Waters. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.